This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is William Henry, an investigative mythologist and author of many books on ancient mythology and neo-archaeology. Among many topics, we will discuss ancient stargates. They are ancient, but they are here right now. After you listen to the beginning of my conversation with William, you will come to the conclusion that there are no coincidences, and sometimes perhaps a force more powerful than anything we know or understand may be responsible for certain events. This interview, and how it came to be, must be one of the most synchronistic events I have ever witnessed. As Carl Jung would describe it, synchronicity is the experience of two or more events that are apparently casually unrelated or are likely to occur together by chance, 
that are observed to occur together in a meaningful manner. That is exactly what happened. William Henry will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show, become a member. Just go to our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe button, and instantly enjoy all of our material over 130 shows, Veritas TV, and the very exclusive Manticore Forum, where people around the world interact and post news and important information we don't have the time to discuss here. So stop waiting to listen to the entire show for the price of two cups of coffee, only $7.95 per month. You can listen to all of our material, hundreds of hours in CD audio quality, and take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today. And stop by the Veritas store, where you can get our 8GB USB drives with Seasons 1 or 2, with a lot of bonus material. Or MMS. What is MMS? Go to the past shows and listen to Jim Humble's interview entitled, Jim Humble vs. the FDA. It's one of those things that is better to have and not need, than need and not have. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and join me on Facebook. Did you know stargates are real? Sounds crazy? Yes, it honestly does. But so does quantum cloning and teleportation. And yet, it's happening as we speak. Have you noticed how about 300 years ago, or thereabouts, all our ancient history texts were basically ruled unreliable because they mentioned supernatural events? All religious texts, many of which were historical texts that were simply labeled religious, except the hieroglyphs from ancient Egypt, were said to be falsehoods. Using the hieroglyphs, they attempted to set a timeline for ancient history, but ignored everything else. Nearly every ancient civilization refers to a place called the underworld and a place called the heavens, both of which appear to be more than simply metaphors for the planets and stars rising and setting into and over the horizon. The ancient Egyptians also believed in an entrance to the underworld and a boat which traveled on heavenly waters, which carried them into the heavens. The ancient Sumerians referred to otherworldly places which were accessed by a gateways into the underworld and gates up to the heavens. Could the ancient ones, instead of traveling in ships, traveled by stargates, portals, or wormholes? Did the ancient leave stargates throughout the planet as a way to escape in the event of a major cataclysm in order to preserve the human race? This may sound like science fiction, but it is real, according to William Henry, who's coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
This is Nassim Harameen, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. During over 25 years of research, investigative mythologist and author William Henry has pursued a startling but undeniable fact that throughout history and across widely diverse cultures, there is an absolutely seamless tradition of the existence of portals and gateways to the stars, which have been preserved in the art and myths of each era and place. Advanced beings that came from the light of the vastness of the Milky Way and beyond, they'd so through these gateways. They left the secrets of these stargate ways for us to discover, along with the keys for transforming ourselves into beings of light in order to travel these gates. William explores the lost secrets of this gate and these star beings in his books and DVDs, including his latest presentation, Soul Rising, The Awakening, The Transformation, The Ascension. You can learn more about William Henry by visiting his website, williamhenry.net. And directly from Nashville, Tennessee, I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, William Henry. Hello, William, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Uh, Very well, Mel. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And William, before we start, I have to share a story of synchronicity with you and the audience, because once all of you hear how this interview came about, you will come to the conclusion that this interview was neither accidental nor incidental. William Henry is here today for a reason. And you are listening to us for a reason, too. Last Sunday, William, I received a message from the guest who was supposed to be here today, stating that a personal matter had come up and he needed to reschedule. I had his uh, books, so I was getting ready to start reading them. Instead, I started watching the TV series Stargate Universe after Mm -hmm. I was told that he was not going to be available. Bear in mind, I saw the movie in the 90s, but had never watched any of the Stargate TV series. At any rate, I watched a few episodes, and in one Their spaceship is heading toward a sun, and the occupants of the ship are getting ready to die, thinking that uh, what happens when you crash on on the sun. Well, the ship actually went to the sun to recharge its batteries, and it went through it like a stargate. Then I started thinking of NASA and the Soho images we have seen lately, where you see large objects going in and out of the sun. The first person I thought of when I saw that episode was William Henry, because I know you discuss ancient stargates, and I said to myself, I wonder what William Henry would say about this episode on the sun being a stargate. Fast (laughs) forward to the next morning. I started writing my to-do list, and the first item was, find a replacement for this week's show. As I'm getting ready to start emailing prospective guests in the hopes of filling the week spot, I hadn't even started yet. Out of the blue, I received a message from William Henry stating, hello, Mel. I would love to come on your show to discuss ancient stargates, unquote. My mouth dropped, folks. I hadn't even (laughs) written to William. What are the chances? And furthermore, I was booked for the next six weeks, so I asked William if he could take this week's spot. And lucky for us, he did. Isn't this a great synchronicity story? And how do you explain this, William? Are we telepathic and don't even know it? Yeah, I guess uh, my higher self or your higher self got in touch with mine and said, let's have a meet. So worked out beautifully. That's a great story, Mel. And I like you. I don't watch that uh, TV program either, so it's kind of funny. Before we start, and since this is your first time on the show, give us some background of yourself and how you started researching all the topics you discuss. Well, I started in 1982. I was uh, then a sophomore at a small Southern Baptist college here in Nashville. I wasn't, wasn't raised in a religious background. I went to a Southern Baptist school because they 
they had a program, a music business program. They would train you to uh, go to work on Music Row here in Nashville or out to Hollywood and that sort of thing. My my ambition was to be an entertainment lawyer. And while I was in my sophomore year, uh, because it was a Southern Baptist college, we had to take Bible study classes. And I, I didn't know anything about the Bible, so it was kind of a fresh take for me. But our professor assigned us to review a book whose implications would impact Christianity. So off to the bookstore I went. This is September 1982, and there's a brand new international best-selling book sitting on the shelf, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And I pick up that book, and it starts talking about the crucifixion of Jesus being a carefully scripted drama, a hoax. Jesus survived the crucifixion, went to a small village in southern France, and left uh, perhaps a legacy there, maybe some kind of treasure associated with them or some esoteric knowledge long lost. And I was instantly hooked. I wrote a 44-page review of the book. I was flunked by my professor who sat me down and said, sure, you want to go to a <laughs> Southern Baptist college agreeing with this kind of trash? Right. And I'm like, yep, this is it. I mean, it was like a Star Trek tractor beam came out of that book and just locked on to me. I ended up going to that small village half a dozen times in the intervening years and started writing books about it and befriended a couple of the authors of that book, Richard Lee, Henry Lincoln. And it just launched me on this quest, this realization that there's there's these parallel tracks. You have the the the, the traditional mainstream story or version of history and some of history's greatest figures, and then you have the, the real story, the parallel story, the mystery or esoteric track. And I jumped tracks, went over onto that side looking for these mysteries and haven't stopped since. And you are in the middle of the Bible Belt as we speak. I am in the buckle of the Bible Belt, Nashville, Tennessee. That's right. More Bibles come out of Nashville than anywhere, including Jerusalem or Rome. It is the center for the Word on the planet. It's kind of uh, kind of remarkable. But it's also the only city in the world, to my knowledge, that has copies or replicas of two pagan temples from the ancient world, one being Pallas Athena's Parthenon, which we have a scale replica of the Parthenon, accurate to an eighth of an inch, including a... 42-foot-tall statue, the tallest indoor statue in the Western world, a statue of Pallas Athena, completely covered in gold. And then we have at the base of our capital this 2,200-foot-long magician's rod that's laid out and growing on 19 acres that uses all this ancient Egyptian temple technology to create uh, just a magnificent park. I call it Stargate Park because it literally is a, it's a, it's a portal of some kind. It's extraordinary. You talk about portals and Stargates. To me, these were terms of science fiction in the past, but according to you, they are not. Tell us what your definition of a Stargate is, and is this the same as a portal or a wormhole? Yeah, great question. I define a Stargate on three different levels. First, a Stargate is the connection from the heart of one sun or star to another star or star system. A Stargate then on Earth is a place on Earth, a piece of real estate where the energy from a star or star system saturates the ground and identifies that place with that particular star system. The Great Pyramid of Giza is a very good example of that. The third definition of a stargate is that it's a literally a, a, a portal, a transportation portal, a traversable wormhole is a connecting link from between these star systems or perhaps from a planet to another planet. So yes, the, a portal, a wormhole, a stargate, all those terms are interchangeable. And in fact, the ancient record is 
loaded with references specifically to gates to the stars. The pyramid texts of ancient Egypt explicitly describe the gods coming and going through gateways or portals. Uh, the artwork in the in the temples of ancient Egypt are explicit in this recognition or understanding that the ancient gods were light beings who traversed the stars and what they referred to as ships of eternity or the ark of the millions of years. And when you look at their depictions of the ship of eternity or the ark of the millions of years, it's a U-shaped boat with lotus uh, blossoms on either side that resemble identically the way modern science portrays a wormhole. And it was based on that similarity that provoked me to say, well, wait a minute, could it be that the ancients knew all about this, as their texts suggest and their artwork suggests as well, but they didn't call it a stargate or a wormhole, they called it the ship of eternity. So that's the kind of the basis for uh, this this hypothesis or theory, if you will, that the ancients knew all about stargates and portals and left us a huge legacy for us to rediscover. If this is reality, who is keeping the secret? And is it the military industrial complex? And if so, are they using it? That's a complicated question. Um, let me answer it this way. I, I'm not convinced that the military-industrial complex controls stargates. There's a lot of talk out there that, that they actually do. Are they seeking the secrets of these stargates? Without question, in my view. And we can talk about uh, why I believe that. But let me just back up just for a second here and recognize that the, the idea for the traversable wormhole was practically invented by Dr. Carl Sagan, who was writing his novel first about first contact, which he called Contact, which was later right. made into the movie with Jody Foster, excuse me, Jody Foster, right. um, and launched the kind of the gospel of the Stargate. Both Stargate, or excuse me, both the movie Contact, Sagan's novel, and the TV series Contact or Stargate are militaristic views of the Stargate, and they they fancy a or feature the, the concept of some kind of a technology that can be used to to open up a a hyperdimensional gateway that might lead to the center of the galaxy in the case of contact, leads all over the, the, the galaxy in the case of uh, Stargate. So is that a possibility? Well, it is, but then when you go back into the ancient world, you notice that every time the gate is, is referenced, it's always in conjunction, at least to the research that I've done, it's in conjunction with the temple of transformation, a place where humans were transformed into divine beings, pure beings, light beings, preparatory to going through that gate. So they weren't concerned about whether or not humans could go through the gate in our physical form. They seem to have been going in and in, in accessing these gates in more of an ethereal form, in a light body form. They were discarding the body. In a way, they, they were kind of scanning themselves is what they were doing. The, the myth of Osiris is a very good one where he's cut to pieces by his evil brother and then he's reassembled by his wife, the priestess Isis, at another location. That sounds like a dematerialization event to me. And we can talk about the technology, the spiritual technology that we see on the walls at the Temple of Seti at Abydos that describes this Osiris technology of, of transformation and what I think of as teleportation. So can uh, is the U.S. military using this stuff? I, I don't have any direct evidence of that. I know people talk about that, but I'm not convinced. 
the reason why I ask you is because I know you've looked into this since 1990 when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And then in 1998, he wanted to create what you call a Disneyland for the Anunnaki. This is so interesting. Why don't you tell us more about this? I am very fascinated in the in the Stargate story of, of Saddam Hussein. I, I first it first came on my radar during the Gulf War, 1991, when your kind of right winger, if you will, very literal Bible prophecy watchers were noting uh, quite correctly that Saddam Hussein had proclaimed himself the reincarnation of the biblical king Nebuchadnezzar, and he was. He had, was spending $500 million to rebuild Babylon, which was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Babylon had to be rebuilt so that, that it could be destroyed, and then after that, the, the Lord would return. That's the, the, the traditional Christian prophecy relating to, to Babylon. So the question became, was Saddam Hussein fulfilling this prophecy? And he definitely appeared to be. So I started following Saddam after that, and I I especially followed him through the art newspapers, the international art newspapers who were talking about, remember those UN weapons inspectors that were going into Iraq? Uh, they were coming out with their pockets filled with ancient Sumerian artifacts, cylinder seals, and, and other artifacts of great value and selling them on the black market. And the art people were kind of up in arms about it, saying, hey, these guys are going in for under one pretense, but they're coming out and they're selling Iraq's uh, legacy. So no wonder they didn't find any weapons of mass destruction. Well, in my view, these ancient artifacts were the, the weapons of mass destruction because what Saddam was doing was going very deep. He was kind of took a uh, a cue from from Nebuchadnezzar himself, who assembled a, a massive library in ancient Babylon, and he had what was called uh, Saddam had what was called the Ashurbanipal project. Ashurbanipal was a an ancient Iraqi king who claimed that he could read all the texts from before the flood and had amassed a, a vast ancient library, including those pre-flood texts. Saddam was trying to duplicate the, the Ashurbanipal library, and he had the Saddam Hussein School for Cuneiform Studies. He had all of this esoteric stuff going, and what he was really trying to do, ultimately, was create a tourist attraction. He wanted people to come to Baghdad, learn the real history of the human race. And the problem is, is that Saddam's history was a little bit more like uh, Zachariah Sitchin's history of the human race than was uh, comfortable for, for most people. And in my view, if Saddam were successful in revealing this lost ancient knowledge that he was seeking and I believe actually possessed, it would have been like rolling a stick of dynamite into uh, traditional Western culture. The Judeo-Christian religion would have been threatened by this, right? That's right. I mean, this knowledge is the ultimate insider knowledge. And I feel that Saddam knew that, knew the effect of it, and thought, felt like he could bring down Judeo-Christian civilization by toppling uh, its sacred cows, its false idols, if you will. And that was certainly part of it. And so I had started reading uh, or researching this in the 90s, began writing more about it around 2001, 2002. And by 2003, well, I mean, I had predicted that if Bush and Cheney won the election, uh, 
in 2000 that we would be in Iraq within six months. I, I was off by a few months, but there was no question to me that they were reading the book of Revelation as a recipe book, and they sought to fulfill that prophecy. And so they were very keen on getting into Babylon as soon as they possibly could. And of course, once we went into Babylon, the first thing they did was make a beeline for the Iraqi National Museum. And lo and behold, it's looted. It's uh, Many of the artifacts are are, are uh, taken some have returned and it's exactly what you would expect that this is this is exactly the type of knowledge these uh the bush cheney cabal were interested in the the religious conservatives are interested in and they're most interested in taking this knowledge and withholding it from everybody else in my view the main reason for going to Iraq, many say is weapons of mass destruction which is proven to be a fallacy others say it was oil but they went before they went for the oil, they went to the National Museum. And what I hear is that some of the museum artifacts have been returned, but they're facsimiles or, or copies. Have you heard that too? Uh, I haven't heard that specifically, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, throughout history, you've always had these regimes and cabals that have sought to, to grab whatever they can of the national treasures of, of, of nations that they invade. And in this particular case, that, that knowledge is is very specific in that it relates directly to this these ancient race of god beings the anunnaki is one of their names and their ability to access these portals and i'm convinced that they that we the us government knew that saddam was very close to to uncovering these secrets and perhaps even utilizing them. I mean, we're talking about the, the ultimate secrets of the universe, and we're talking about secrets that can, can be weaponized, and we're talking about control, literally, of space. And I think Saddam knew that. I think he was on top of that. As he viewed himself as the reincarnated Nebuchadnezzar, he sought to duplicate what Nebuchadnezzar had done in his life, and even perhaps to exceed what he had done. He's seeing himself as Nebuchadnezzar and just continuing his mission. And of course, it was the a uh, lot of folks I'm sure talk about. Oh yeah, we went to Iraq for ancient Stargate knowledge and all that kind of thing. And actually, I was the person that broke that story uh, on coast to coast. It was kind of a funny story. George and I talk about it very often because he that I actually got ran off the show because I was talking about it. It was kind of uh, kind of humorous, but it's very important that we recognize what was it that prompted me to think that Saddam was, was actually accessing Stargates. And the, the proof to me is, again, this Nebuchadnezzar connection. In the book of Daniel, we, we learn the story of Nebuchadnezzar and, and his portal or Stargate. And the story is, is that he's got this gleaming golden image that he's set up in Babylon that he can't quite get the thing to work. He's got a piece of hardware, but apparently he didn't have the, the software to make it work, but he knew that the wise men at the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem probably did have that software. So what does he do? He goes and loots and levels the Temple of Solomon, brings the Jews to Babylon and the fam famous Babylonian captivity. Among them are three wise men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and also Daniel, as well as Ezekiel, who was having all kinds of visions of extraterrestrial beings and phenomenal craft of some kind. And what happens is, is that Nebuchadnezzar has this fiery furnace that is, that is somehow manifesting or working there in Babylon. And he makes a wager with the three wise men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that if they can enter into that fiery furnace 
uh, and come back out, he'll convert to their God. Well, in the story, these three wise men put on their coat, their hat, and their other garments, which I found very strange. If you're going into a fiery furnace, why are you going to put any garments on at all? Right. But not only that, but they, they enter it, and they come back out in pristine condition. And not only are they in pristine condition, they're not alone. The Son of God is with them. Now, when people hear the Son of God, they're thinking, Jesus? Jesus. It's actually not Jesus. It turns out when you do the, hit the books and look into it, his name was Nabu, the royal one. Nabu was a, an Anunnaki priest. And in fact, Nabu, Nabuchadnezzar got, took his name from Nabu. And Nabu stayed for a while. He came through this portal or gateway, the, the fiery furnace, and stayed for a while. In fact, he, they erected massive libraries filled with ancient knowledge that Nabu had delivered to them. And this is the knowledge that I believe Saddam was ultimately seeking. But beyond that knowledge, I think what he was also after was the coat, the hat, and the other garments that those three wise men were wearing. Because what I've done is, is match those up with the garment worn by the Anunnaki goddess Mari. When she descended into the underworld, she wore her miracle garment. She wore her Shigura helmet, which Zechariah Sitchin said literally translated Shigura means that which makes go far into the universe. And she wore her other garments called the, the armor of God. And I'm convinced that those accoutrements, the, the, the coat, the hat, and the other garments that the three wise men were wearing was in fact the armor of God. And it's some kind of a Stargate getup. And what it really is, it, these are all symbols of the transformed or perfected human, the light being human, that can then access that gate. And uh, trans, translate or uh, travel to other star systems or perhaps to other dimensions and back to Earth again and then re-manifest themselves in a physical form. That's why I was referring to the, the episode of Stargate Universe. They go through the sun, nothing happens, but they come out somewhere else. You're saying that they're going through a, a fiery place and they don't get burned. Mm -hmm. Is the sun a Stargate, William? Yes, it is. Uh, according to ancient Egyptian myth and religion, the sun is the way and the truth and the light. The way to get to heaven is through the sun. So, for example, in, in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, you'll see vignettes with the lions of yesterday and tomorrow symbolizing eternity on either side of the sun disk. And above it is the Egyptian symbol for heaven. The way you read that cartoon, ultimately, is it's saying the sun is a, is a portal. The, uh, the sun is a gateway to heaven. It is the gate of eternity. And in fact, um, one of the things that I'm researching right now is a, is a consequence of studying the Stargate suit, which is really the light body, is this, there was a story about Enoch, who was a pre-flood figure, probably an Atlantean sage or scholar, who was taken up to heaven by the archangel Michael. And Michael rubs this oil all over Enoch's body, and suddenly Enoch is transformed from a human into one of the glorious ones. He's, he's, he's glowing rays. He's illuminated. He's literally a light being. And it, it appears that one, one of the, the requirements for opening these portals is, is this transformation of the body, and there's this oil, this substance, that might even have been the anointing oil of Jesus, in fact, that transforms the body into, into the light body, or what the Tibetans called the rainbow body. It's the oil of the perfected ones, as it's called. They're, they're perfect because they're completely pure. They're beings of pure light. 
Well, recently, some Russian scientists have hypothesized that uh, in their studies that wormholes might exist between distant stars. And they went one step forward to say that they believe that at the heart of some stars, the, these wormhole stars, there might be a some kind of a, a plant within that star of, of, that manufactures a, a fluid, which they called the perfect fluid. And when I read that, I'm thinking, well, yeah, absolutely. This is the oil of the perfected ones. They, they know how to harvest this substance from the sun that transforms them into beings of light. Because, in fact, this oil that was rubbed on Enoch, it's described as glittering like the rays of the sun. Well, it glitters like the rays of the sun because it's probably the sun that produces it. And so I'm citing this as another example of the way in which modern science seems to be catching up at long last with what the ancients already knew. The sun's a stargate. The sun's a wormhole. It produces the perfect fluid that opens the mouth of the wormhole long enough for a, a, perhaps a soul or a light being to, to travel through. Can this oil cause ascension? And is there any relationship between the oil and white powder gold? Well, the white powder gold uh, is a kind of a is a tricky one. That originally, uh, if you're thinking of the white powder gold as the manna from heaven, it was described as being dew-like and uh, manifested with the rising sun. But this oil is different. I think the dew and this oil are, or excuse me, the the manna and this oil are two different things. Uh, they might originally come from the same source, but I'm, I'm tracking them as two two separate things. So Saddam Hussein wanted to make Iraq, especially Baghdad, a great tourist destination where people could explore our origins unlike any other place on earth. But you know, William, I was never a fan of Saddam or any other dictator. But is Iraq better off today than it was before March of 2003? Is Iraq better off today than pre-Saddam days? I haven't been there personally. I would very much like to go. But from what I had seen, I would have to say no. And this is in part based on my uh, travels in Egypt. What most Americans, Westerners, typically aren't aware of is just, just how macho the Arab world really is. It's a, it's a totally alpha society. Although the families are run by the mothers, they still need that really strong father figure, the Mubarak types, the, the Saddam types. And that seems to be what, what works in, in the Arab world. And so when we come in there trying to impose democracy, uh, while a segment of the population wants it, it seems that the psyche hasn't been prepared for it. And to try to just superimpose it or overlay it, overlay it on a civilization that has been operating the same way for the past couple of thousand years it seems like a, a really tall order. So I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced that Iraq is better off uh, today than it, than it was under Saddam. Um, I think that we probably did a good thing getting rid of Saddam, ultimately. Um, but whether or not it's going to be totally beneficial for the Iraqi people remains to be seen. And one quick detour. I heard that during the uprisings in Egypt, you were there and you were cut right in the middle. Is that correct? I was right in the middle of it. I had a group of 24 people with me and we suddenly found ourselves in what felt like a movie. 
I mean, I, I would joke with them during it that, hey, people like to come to Egypt to, for initiations. They want to go into the temples and they want to have an experience. They want to remember perhaps something about themselves. They want to connect with a with a higher energy. And in the ancient world, one of the ways that you, you did this was what key part of it was about overcoming fear. You had to increase your personal belief system and, and leave fear out. So so one of the stories they tell is that they would put the initiates in a in a pool full of crocodiles and you had to swim across. Well, today we don't have a pool full of crocodiles to help you overcome your fear. We just drop you into a country that suddenly descends into chaos, and now you have to find a way to get home. And that's that's what we did. It was uh, an extraordinary experience. We all kind of pulled together and uh, had to keep ourselves psyched up at all times, focused on the victory that was at hand. We saw ourselves ultimately getting home safely and having a high story to tell, and I think that helped us tremendously. I remember hearing your story right after your return from Egypt, and uh, it was pretty emotional. But for the listeners, tell us what the cylinder seals are. Cylinder seals are very fascinating pieces of, of ancient communications technology. They're they're crystal, made of crystal, and they're about the size of a tube of lipstick. And what happens is is scenes will be etched upon these crystals, and when they're rolled out, like, for example, on clay, it reveals a cartoon. They're sort of like uh, silly putty, in a way, and that whatever is in them can be rolled out, and you can see the scene. So it's an ingenious way of preserving information for a very long time. And very often, uh, these seals are uh, have mundane references within them, um, but other times, they show the most extraordinary scenes. Uh, for example, some of my favorites uh, portray the, the sun god Shamash as he rises through the heavens through celestial gates or doors. And they literally show him going through this gateway or this, this doorway with his attendants on either side. And it's, it's very clear that it's, it, these are ascension scenes that we're seeing on these cylinder seals. And these are just some that are in, the, uh, in, in museums, like the Chicago Oriental Museum is a good example that has quite a few of these really interesting gateway or portal cylinder seals. They show in another scene Shamash riding through the stars on his celestial boat. They're, they're often very stellar. And it's this, this is the type of thing that gets me excited because if I'm seeing something like this in the, in, the, in, in the cases at the J.P. Morgan Library or at the Chicago Oriental Museum, what, what's back in the basement? What's, what, what is yet to be uh, revealed to the public? I mean, it's just astonishing. And again, I'm convinced that Saddam had his own personal collection of these things. And if he had the bug up for him, like I do, he was doing his darndest to get uh, dig deeper and find the, the, the really esoteric ones. Didn't other countries, all the way from the 1800s, take a lot of the artifacts from Iraq, their national patrimony, and eventually Saddam Hussein started calling all those countries to say, hey, that's ours, and we want it back. Is that correct? Yeah, this was part of the uh, the Ashurbanipal project. The, a lot of those pre-flood texts, or alleged pre-flood texts, like or the early Sumerian stuff, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the oldest human story, an immortality tale telling about the, the ancient Sumerian king's quest for immortality and his, his search for the gate of the gods. This stuff was... Uh, they call them the Puritans of Babylon. They, they came into Iraq, they carted all this stuff up, 
took it back to to uh, to England, put some of it on display in the British Museum. The rest of it is still in crates, very much like you mentioned the white powder gold. My my friend uh, Lawrence Gardner used to tell me about all of the stuff about uh, the manna and the white powder that's still in the crates in the basement of the British Museum hasn't even been unpacked. And this is a really important part of of the history of of what has happened here in the in the twenty. 20th century as well as the here in the 21st century because when they first started going into to Babylon back in the 1840s and 50s you had two groups of people that were going you had your your hardcore bible thumpers that were there and they were digging up the sands of Iran and Iraq and elsewhere trying to prove that the bible was true they felt like they found evidence of Ezekiel Ezekiel the temples that Ezekiel was at and so forth and then you had another group of people mostly coming out of Germany, who were going to the same sites, the same temples, the same locations, looking for evidence that the story of Atlantis was true. And so you have these two competing factions, the one coming out of America trying to prove the Bible, then the ones coming out of Germany trying to prove that all this goes back to Atlantis and this great uh, former Aryan race, as they like to call it, that connected themselves with the mighty ones of old, the sons of God who came from the stars. And so both of them had the same agenda, but wanted to utilize the information for different purposes. And both ultimately sought to conceal this information from the, the, the majority of the public. Going back to the cylinder seals for a moment, they're made of uh, crystals. I think of a USB drive. If we see a USB drive, it's a small item, but it can carry a lot of information. I've been told that crystals can hold an enormous amount of information. The question is, how do we access that information from the crystal? Well, the, the, the information is actually etched on the outside, the exterior of the crystal. And so you, you would roll it out on wet clay, and when it dries, it reveals the scene that's etched on the crystal. Now, that does bring up an interesting question about what might possibly be held energetically within that crystal. And uh, having never had access to them from the point of being able to hold them in my hand, uh, I, I don't have any personal experience with that, nor do I know of any scholars that have, have written about such a thing. But that's a very good question and uh, would be certainly a, a really cool experience to actually be able to hold some of these 5,000-year-old crystals. And regarding the artifacts that they have in crates, not even displayed, what is the purpose and why are they keeping these artifacts sequestered this way? Well, for the most part, the reason that they would sequester the information or hide it is because it contradicts the official story, the, the, the traditional Judeo-Western Western Christian story that we all began in the Garden of Eden and then we're moving forward to Judgment Day and all will be well. I mean, that's the... Uh, that's the problem with it. If you've got knowledge that, that contradicts that story or certainly predates it, now you've, you've got a real problem because now you're talking, you're opening up the can of, uh, can of worms there, or can of wormholes rather, because it's all about, well, who were these, these God beings, these beings that came from the stars? And how come they're always, how come they, they never show them flying around in flying saucers for one thing? Well, it's because they're traveling through gateways. But how come all these seals just show these God beings coming and going through these gateways? Where are these gates? And, and how can we access them? Those are, those are kind of dangerous questions from the Judeo-Christian perspective, although we have to acknowledge that 
our, our fundamental archetype, the story of Adam and Eve, is a story about us being deprived of that gate. We all know that Adam and Eve had a little problem with God. They, they got some wisdom from uh, the, a figure referred to as the serpent. Next thing you know, they're evicted from the Garden of Eden. Yahweh, that Old Testament God, creates a gate at the east of Eden, places cherubim on either side of the gate and a flaming sword in the center, and says, uh, don't come back. So ever since then, we've been seeking that gate that returns us to the paradisical realm. And, but the one thing that most people forget is that not only did God create that gate, but the book of Genesis also says that when Adam and Eve were evicted from the Garden of Eden, God at that moment then made coats of skin for them as well. So if we didn't have coats of skin when we were in the Garden of Eden, what form exactly were we in when we were in the Garden of Eden? In my view, and this is based on Judeo-Christian uh, esoteric stories, we were light beings. Adam and Eve were beings of light. And then they're given, they're evicted from the gateway, from Eden, sent through the gate, and then given coats of skin. And so from that perspective, the human body seems to become a, a bit of an orange prison suit in, in, in a way. It, it's certainly something to be transcended. And I believe that this sets up the, the belief system that the only way to get back through that gate is to drop the, the orange jumpsuit to to drop the human body because it's not going through the gate. Uh, William, this reminds me of uh, the time when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. The Vatican sent some of their highest-ranking people there just to see what was coming out because the information could uh, definitely also jeopardize uh, Judeo-Christian religions. And on this show, mo most of the people who listen are always pursuing, just like me, the three most important questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? And why are we here? It seems that the powers that want to be, especially organized religion, they want to keep this information secret from us. Because if we don't know who we are or what our purpose is of being here, then we don't ask questions. Why is this knowledge so important for them that they want to keep us in the dark like mushrooms. And certainly, we are forbidden from knowing that we have so much more power, potential, and abilities than we are led to believe. Well, part of the reason uh, is you can't have a planet full of Christ-like beings running around. They're unmanageable, and they don't pay taxes. So that's, that's part of it. But ultimately, if you follow the the pathway through like the work of Zachariah Sitchin, he sets up that conflict between the two factions of these of these god beings who, in his view, control the human race. You had the one faction that sought to uplift humanity to the level of the gods and even to transcend the the, the capabilities of the gods. And then you have Enki and Enlil. Enki and Enlil, right. Then you have the other faction that want to keep us at the level of slaves and sex objects. And the, the gospel of Zechariah Sitchin says that these beings came here to mine gold. Well, I don't, I don't buy that argument. I, I dropped that a, a long time ago and uh, had to come up with a different justification for the creation of the human body. And what I noticed is that the being that is attributed to these, uh, the, the, who is credited, rather, with transforming or altering the human genetic code into a slave race is, is Enki. 
And Enki is the guy that wanted to see us to, uh, to spiral up the path of ascension. Furthermore, he was also considered to be the god of alchemy, the god of smithcraft and alchemy. And as I read that, I'm thinking, okay, Zechariah Sitchin is saying this is the guy that came to Earth to mine gold and violated what, you know, to use a Star Trek term, violates the prime directive, creates a slave race to, to mine this gold. Why didn't he just go grab a hunk of space rock somewhere and transmute it? Why did he have to go to all the bother to, to come here to do what, what, what ultimately happened here? And the, and the answer that I propose is that they weren't here to mine gold. In the alchemical tradition, gold and the human soul are considered to be interchangeable. They're not really out to try to turn lead into gold. They're trying to transform an impure soul into a pure soul. So they're here to mine souls and utilizing the human body as a vehicle, a, a vehicle for which that soul can use to scale the ladder to heaven, to, to act like uh, Jack climbing the beanstalk into the higher heavenly worlds. The problem is, is that as you spiral up that path of ascension, your capabilities increase. Suddenly you, you can bilocate, suddenly you can teleport, suddenly you can levitate, suddenly you can instantly manifest wishes. This is very dangerous if you've got people running around that are not fully developed souls, soul beings utilizing this kind of power, they can turn into ruthless dictators like a Hitler or somebody like that. So part of this is about keeping this knowledge out of the mainstream and, and making it so that the seekers then are the ones that are really deeply going out and gathering this information and doing the hard work of perfecting their soul. Sitchin claimed the Serpent of Eden was actually Enki, mm -hmm. the leader of the Anunnaki, mm -hmm. who was shown to be ha half-human, half-serpent. Mm -hmm. Does this make Enki also a light being? Well, you've, you've hit it right on the head, but uh, we have to kind of walk into how we answer that question affirmatively. When you go back and you look at the earliest depictions of the, the Garden of Eden story, the serpent is actually a winged serpent. And that, of course, yes. now we're, we're talking about Enki. There's no question we're talking about Enki. We're talking about a, a winged serpent or who is an illuminated being, a shining one. So he's shining, he's winged, and he's half human, half serpent. Well, wait a minute. So are the, the seraphs. The, the seraphs in the Judeo-Christian tradition are the highest order of angels. They're called the fiery serpents, the winged or fiery serpents. They're considered to be beings of pure light and pure love. They dwell at the throne of God, and they are considered to be the highest order of beings. So if, in fact, Enki is the winged serpent, or is a winged serpent, by definition, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, he is a seraph. He is a being of light. And now this takes us into a really interesting territory here, because you, you've got some folks out there that, that believe the Anunnaki are reptilian. And they use this justification, oh, Enki's the winged serpent. Well, so he must be reptilian. Well, I mean... Yeah, he's denigrated and demonized all the time. I know it. And it's like, where are you guys coming from? I think they need to just dig a little bit deeper here. And if you do that, you're, you're confronted with the question of whether or not the Anunnaki were physical beings at all. They instead, at least Enki, appears to be some kind of a 
a light being, a, a spirit being that can take physical manifestation. So as I delved into that further, it's, it's a very important question because, of course, the, the fiery flying serpent is the definition of a seraph or seraphim in, in, in Judeo-Christian tradition, but that's also the definition of Quetzalcoatl, the Mayan savior right. figure, who is yep. portrayed as half human and half serpent. So are we talking about a recurrence of this same figure or what? And they expect him, of course, according to Maya 2012 enthusiasts, they believe that he's going to be coming out of the center of the galaxy riding upon a serpent rope, which my, my friend John Major Jenkins says is actually a wormhole. And this is exactly how I believe these light beings travel. They don't, they've dispensed long ago with, with flying saucers and that kind of thing if they ever used them. Instead, they're, they're traveling through these interdimensional portals, through these, these wormholes. And so as we delve into this further and further, um, we start to recognize that, okay, wait a minute, we're talking about a, a completely different order of beings here, and why did they get this rap of being reptilian? Well, the answer that I propose is that when you look at these depictions of the seraphs, uh, they have these vortex-shaped bodies in, in Judeo-Christian art. It's, and the idea I think we're supposed to get from that is that their bodies are actually spinning. They're spinning vortexes of light. And they're six-winged, which I think of as connecting with the six points of the what's called the, the Merkaba, the chariot of the spirit, the chariot of light, which is the preferred transportation vehicle of these high order of beings. So it's like a 3D star of David. A 3D star of David, that's right. So instead of showing the, the six points of the star of David, instead they show them as six-winged. That's that's my take on it, anyway. But they so they've got these vortex-shaped bodies that are spinning. They're we're, we're told they're beings of pure light, and they uh, might be in fact in their Merkaba vehicle. Well, I matched those depictions up with some very powerful uh, depictions of from uh, the Tibetan tradition of what they call the rainbow body. In Tibet, there's a teaching. It's an extraterrestrial teaching, which we can talk about at source here in a minute. But the Tibetans believed that the human body, the, the frequency of the body can be accelerated. It can be spun into a vortex of energy so that ultimately it, it manifests as five-colored rainbow light, leaving behind only hair, toe, and fingernails, which have no nerves to be transmuted. And when they show the rainbow body in Tibetan art, it's a swirling vortex of rainbow-colored light. And you put that beside the Judeo-Christian's depictions of the of the uh, of the seraph, and it's a virtual perfect A to B match. It seems that what we're talking about, and this was a belief uh, during the Renaissance, by the way, that humans can transform into seraph or seraphim. They can transform into beings of light. And the Tibetans absolutely believed that. And in fact, up into the modern day, they talk about manifestations of these rainbow body beings. And they refer to this process as the great perfection. The perfected human is one who has transformed themselves into pure light, pure love, and manifested it as the rainbow body. Now, the thing is, is that when you see their faces, when you see the faces of those who have achieved the rainbow body in Tibetan art, we're not talking about actual photos, we're talking about Tibetan artistic representations of this. You see their necks and you see their face, and it's really intriguing, Mel, because with this swirling energy, their necks almost look, and their, their neck and faces almost look serpentine. And I'm thinking, is this the origin of the whole 
reptilian idea. I mean, the modern idea of the reptilians is basically attributed to David Icke. And when you look at, David, where'd you get that idea? Well, a psychic once told me that there were reptilian beings, and I went out and I did some traveling, and a half a dozen people talked about reptilians. He put those two data points together, and David Icke says, there's reptilians all over the place, and they're controlling yep. us. Yeah, but does that, does that say they're good? No. Or bad? No. No. It just says that, that David Icke had a psychic reading, and they told him that the reptilians existed, and somebody else said, oh, yeah, I think they do too, and all of a sudden it's a earth-shaking matrix theory. Right. And I don't know. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is that if Enki is the winged serpent, he's a seraph. He's a spirit being. He's a light being. And he may be one of these rainbow body light beings, these perfected beings. And when he comes to Earth, he has zero interest in gold. I don't know where Sitchin got that idea. I really don't. And he's interested in souls. He's interested in transforming impure souls into pure souls. And I think when you look at the backstory of this, the whole backstory, of course, is this planetary cataclysm, that these these souls once existed on a former planet in our solar system called Tiamat that gets shattered. Oh. Half of it becomes the asteroid belt, the other half becomes Earth. Mm -hmm. There's forewarning. There's foreknowledge of the cataclysm. Some souls got off. What if all of them didn't? Wouldn't a beneficent God, wouldn't a benevolent being say, we got to go get those guys. Let's go get those souls off that shattered planet. How are we going to do it? Well, we're going to go there and we're going to create a stairway to heaven. It's called the human body. We're going to alter it and we're going to show people how to utilize the body to transform it, to recognize that it, that they can acquire this knowledge and acquire a pure heart. They can actually spin that body into a vortex of energy. And then you know what? Then they travel to any of the other 13 star systems where this teaching is taught. That's what the Tibetans teach, is that the rainbow body teaching did not come from Earth. It was brought here from another star system. And in fact, the rainbow body teaching is taught in 13 star systems in addition to our own. And what happened in my course of investigation is that I, would, I had been talking all about the ancient Egyptian gods and how they believed we could turn ourselves into stars. Exact same idea. The, the pharaohs, their whole setup, their lives were geared towards transforming themselves into light beings or star beings so that then they could travel on the ship of eternity as star beings for eternity. And the ship of eternity, again, I propose is the same as the wormhole. So I'm at a UFO conference uh, about five years ago. It was, happened to be the Bay Area Expo. A couple comes up to me and says, hey, we, we love your work. Uh, we watched Star Walkers and the Dimension of the Blessed. And you answered for us a question that we've been looking for answers to for a while. They then told me that they both had PhDs from the Harvard Divinity School. They knew the Dalai Lama, lived in India, translated Tibetan texts about the rainbow body, and, and were the ones that told me, and I later saw it in other texts as well, that the rainbow body teaching is, is, is taught in 13 star systems in addition to our own. And after these lamas achieve the rainbow body, they can then travel to these star systems. But they always wondered, how did they get from soul, our star system, to these other star systems that Tibetans wouldn't tell them or couldn't because it's secret. Then they said they watched my DVD and it became obvious how they travel to these other star systems. The body itself opens the wormhole and they travel to these star systems through wormholes. And that's what kind of 
put everything together for me, the linking the Egyptian, linking the Tibetan, linking the ancient Anunnaki stories, linking the Judeo-Christian tradition, they all talk about the ability of the human body, body to be transformed into a star, a light being, a star being. And the purpose for doing that ultimately is so that you can then travel the stars as a star being through these wormhole systems. But you see, there's so much mystery with, with the Tibet and the Tibet monks. Uh, and as you know, Hitler via the Ananurba, they went there, they wanted to get all the information they could. W why are they so secretive with this information if it's going to help us ascend? A a and also, a, a two-pronged question, the Anunnaki, which has one part that wants to help us ascend and the other part that does not want to, did they? was that part responsible for switching up perhaps or disabling uh, functions of our DNA that could help us with uh, ascension or spirituality? Yeah, I would say that that's a, a very good possibility, and you don't even have to tinker with the DNA. You just have to tinker with the culture. You just have to create a culture that says, oh, no, you can't do that. You're, you're not allowed to do that. You're not, you're not good enough, smart enough to be able to transform yourself into a being of light. In fact, that's stupid. That's all you have to do. And our culture has basically been living under that paradigm for how many, how many millennia? But now that's what's shifting with science coming along and catching back up and saying, oh, yeah, the, the idea of the traversable wormhole is a possibility. We're starting to see a, a cultural shift that accepts this concept. We're seeing TV shows. We're seeing movies. We're seeing it in commercials. We're seeing it all over the place. We're seeing it in urban artwork, all reflecting this idea that, okay, yeah, stargates, wormholes, yeah, no problem. They exist. So what? Well, it's a big so what. What I feel is that in the past, this knowledge has been suppressed because, once again, it's, it's up to the seeker to find it for themselves. We can't simply be told this in a way. And I'm not saying that those who do withhold this knowledge or in any way have our best interest at heart. I'm sure some of them don't. But I also know that many people who seek this, you, you basically seek this knowledge for only two reasons, either one, the love of power or for the power of love. When you're talking about Hitler, when you're talking about FDR, when you're talking about Saddam, Napoleon, they clearly were seeking this knowledge for the love of power with knowledge that they could ultimately weaponize these secrets. And that's reason enough to, uh, to keep it out of sort of the public consciousness. And let me give you a little water break as well. Let's take a quick intermission, William. But before, I want to ask you a question and get your answer. Actually, a comment question and get your answer on the other side, since we're talking about Stargate. Folks, there are strange monuments all over the world. And in September of 1996, a huge, mysterious door-like structure was discovered in the Hayumarca mountain region of, of southern Peru. And it's known as the Puerta de Hayumarca, Gate of the God's uh, Spirits. And the city is known as the City of God's other structures around the world have been found too. And not too far from here, William, where I am, there's allegedly a portal inside of an Indian reservation in a town called Portal, Arizona, that <laughs> allegedly allegedly is activated during monsoon season during thunderstorms. For the skeptic mind, how do we confirm all of this? And we'll get your answer on the other side. Once again, tell us how to get in touch with your work, your books, and your, your appearances all over the world. My website is williamhenry.net. I appreciate if everybody would hop on over there and take a look at some of my DVDs, Soul Rising, more for my two current bestsellers that go into all of the ancient Stargate metaphysics, as I call it, and this process of transforming ourselves into beings of light. So I uh, hope everybody will come on over. 
Absolutely. And uh, we have links on our website as well. I am so privileged to have William Henry here with me. We have so much more to explore. So don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is Lucy Wyatt, and you're listening to Veritas. Veritas. 